0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore, and you're listening to a special episode of the Hearing Architecture podcast made in collaboration with the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, otherwise known as APAF. In keeping with the APAF 2021 theme, How New Is Now, in this episode, we're speaking about architectural entrepreneurism and how career progression is changing in design now that few careers appear to be linear. Our special guests in this episode are Caitlin Butler, Chris Firminger, Jacob Nash, Anna O'Gorman, Ken Yuktasevi and Georgia Burks. Caitlin Butler is the Editorial Director at Architecture Media, as well as a writer, editor and curator. Prior to her appointment as Editorial Director, Caitlin was the Design Portfolio Manager at Architectural Media, Editor of Houses from 2010 to 2018 and Assistant Editor of Architecture Australia from 2005 to 2009. Christopher Furminger is the director of the architectural and building firm, Firminger. Christopher's foundation for design was developed while working as a carpenter and registered builder for over 10 years in Brisbane. After completing his architectural studies at the University of Queensland, he was designing award-winning residential projects with James Russell Architects and sessional teaching at the University of Queensland. Jacob Nash is currently the head designer at Bangara Dance Theatre and has been working with the company since 2010. He has designed the sets for all of their productions since that time. Some of these works include Our Land People Stories Patangarang, Infinity Waramuck in the Dark Night and Of Earth and Sky he has co-directed, along with Stephen Page, all of Bangara's digital content for the Vivid Festival, which has been projected onto a pylon of the Harbour Bridge annually since 2014. In 2016 and 17, Jacob was also the production designer for ABC's sci-fi drama series, Clever Man. Anna O'Gorman established Anna O'Gorman Architects in 2016 to collaborate closely with clients. Her practice is characterised by curiosity rather than prescriptive methodology. In 2018, Anna's project North Shore Pavilion won a host of awards, which expanded on her client's brief on a level far beyond what her clients had expected. Ken Yuktasevi is an architect, designer and founding director of Parable Studio. Recognised for his game-changing design work in the lifestyle, hospitality and commercial sectors, Ken's passion for storytelling and people has led to a unique and compelling perspective in designing solutions. Working across the fields of architecture, interior design and branding, Ken has worked with several brands in different industries, including Grain Traders, Hua Jewellery, Singapore Stock Exchange, Singapore Airlines and Salad Stop. We're also joined by Georgia Burks, who is an Associate Editor at Architecture Media. She is a proud descendant of the Kamilaroi and Dunguddy people. Georgia completed her Bachelor of Architectural Design at the University of Queensland, graduating as Valedictorian. She has written a number of reviews, participated in panels across Australia, and is a co-curator of the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival. Welcome to the APAF Hearing Architecture episode, How New Is Now in Architectural Entrepreneurism. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Hearing Architecture podcast. We've got Chris Firmiger, Anna O'Gorman, Caitlin Butler, Jake Nash, Ken Yukta Sevi and Georgia Burks joining me today to talk about entrepreneurism in architecture and design. So thank you everyone for coming in today and for being part of this APAF and Hearing Architecture Collaboration special episode. So just to get us started, I mean, a huge part of entrepreneurism is going through a bit of a column A, column B exercise and finding a special thing within your skill set or a special thing in the profession that you want to do your own way. And all of you have done that in one way or another so i'd like to start off by talking to to ken um ken now your your business is you're you're an architect you're a designer and you also do some work in branding and you've got you lean quite heavily into working in hospitality do you want to tell us a little bit about what the reasons were for not purely staying in the architect lane uh, in your practice
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I get this question a lot, you know, I mean, not just um, in industry talks and all that, but I get these these kinds of questions from friends and, you know, from family and students, because like most places, I guess, you know, in Asia, Singapore has this very, very pragmatic and very kind of like, you know, solid stance on, on disciplines. That means if you're a doctor, you're a doctor. If you're a dentist, you're a dentist. If you're an architect, you're an architect. But for me, I, I guess the, it's funny because I feel like it's almost accidental how it happened to me. Like I've always been just really in love with storytelling, really in love with experiences. Um, I actually thought I was gonna be a filmmaker and filmmaking was actually my you know, the very first thing I embarked on in terms of my studies, in terms of you know, my interests. You know, um, I begun just making documentary films in school. I studied in Australia actually. And just fell in love with the idea of documentary filmmaking because it was always about kind of gathering as much of the truth as possible and then kind of taking that truth and stewarding and fashioning that truth into something with a perspective and that perspective in turn um, has carries a purpose behind that so i was you know i I thought i was going to be a documentary filmmaker Both my parents are architects and my mother's an interior designer and my dad's an architect. So I grew up in in that field and I thought, I told myself that, you know, growing up, that's the last thing I would ever become would be an architect or an interior designer because I had really bad allergies and um, I would hang out in my mom's material department and every time I was in her office, I'd just be sneezing, breaking up into a rush and my dad was always away. So I just told myself I'd never do this for a living. But... My mom passed away when I was just 23 years old, which then kind of like forced me to kind of really think about what it meant to be her son, what it meant to follow in your parents' footsteps. And in Asia, you know, it's really, really big, you know, about kind of honor and this this idea of carrying on the family name. And you know, I don't consider myself very culturally Asian, but there was just something about that that called out to me, and and I decided to try stepping into my mom's practice to take over. Um, totally messed it up, you know, at 23, 24, trying to run <laughs> my mom's interior design practice. Um, but being a filmmaker, I, I lost I lost all her clients. You know, everybody in the office pretty much designed We were in the red, like literally, I was thinking about filing for bankruptcy in, in my mom my mom's studio and just really embarrassing because you know all her friends were just watching, you know, and But then that was the beginning of, you know, me deciding to try to do things differently. And I started my own studio after that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's a pretty interesting way to start a firm. (laughs) Starting with (laughs) so if you lost all of the existing architecture or interiors clients, what did you start to then tell people you you do? What what did you how did you focus people back towards working with you again?
1: So one thing I did have was I had a really firm way that I wanted to create. And that was to be able to understand my client's brief, my client's story and the context, you know, as deep as a a way a documentary filmmaker would. um, That means, you know, I really understand the heart of things. Um, Rather than just listen out for the form of what clients were looking for, I wanted to listen out for the, just to have a hearing heart as to what the client was really looking for and what the customers or the audience was really desiring. And at that time, I was really blessed because, you know, design thinking became... big thing in singapore and and design thinking does take this kind of very customer-centric approach so i i I wouldn't consider myself a design thinker but i literally rode that wave i found the opportunity to kind of use that to like to bring in the way that i thought and um, i just started pitching it to clients every single pitch that we had it was actually uh, you know singapore airlines that was the first client to actually say okay we'll give you a chance because before that i was just I was losing jobs left, right and center. I wasn't able, I pitched, you know, a certain way of approaching things when it came to you know, very strong kind of research approach, a very strong storytelling approach and nobody bought that. But um, I, I remember walking into a pitch for Singapore Airlines and I just kind of pitched my heart out saying that, you know, like, I really want to understand your customers. I want to understand your brand. And by nature, you know, when you find that right client where, they are a patron in that sense, when the brand and the story and the, and the customers mean so much to them. It just kind of opened the door for us to, like, have our first breakthrough project for <laughs> Singapore Airlines.
2: Ken, I find that story about studying in film and then transitioning into design really interesting. And I think there's a couple of people on this panel that have had a similar background. We've got Chris, who was a builder and then started his own architecture practice, and Caitlin, who also started architecture and has gone into media, so I guess my question putting towards you three is, did you ever feel unsure about a change in your career regarding transitioning from building to architecture or architecture to media or film into design? Chris, what was your experience?
3: Hey guys, my experience similar to Ken's is I, I don't think you really plan it. It kind of happens a little bit organically and very incrementally. and. For me, it was a really about gathering of experiences in one field that kind of opened me up to seeing that there is actually different varieties or pathways to take in the building industry. And after doing some sort of lovely work with sort of architects and designers, I started to see that there really was kind of a different approach that could be taken compared to kind of some of the more traditional sort of building firms out there. And uh, in that sort of long process of gathering experience. It was quite a long period. So I sort of began as an apprentice, who became a carpenter, who became a builder, who studied architecture, who became a graduate, who became a registered architect. It's kind of like the kind of butterfly cocoon kind of story. It's kind of a long story, but the collecting of experience along the way, I find it very hard to now separate the two things in a similar way that Ken mentioned that he has this uh, narrative that he brings to his work, the, the same approach I could extrapolate to so what I do. It's kind of, in a way, building it with a pencil. Like I sometimes think that even a line on the page is kind of like the, the same as a builder or a, a block layer adding sort of these kind of components and building it up from, from nothing and, or imagining it from a place of kind of thinking about a connection and then kind of imagining what it might be like
4: beforehand.
3: So, yeah, I, I agree with Ken. I, I sort of think that it is a, a process of evolution and I plan to keep on adding to that experience in different ways. So using building as a tool to tie back into our architecture. So really using building as a tool for investigation and um, building of knowledge of material and connection and how things are put together.
5: I think it's really interesting to think about all these different paths that we've taken and it's about this evolution, you know, for all of us. I think when I first started architecture, like Ken, I thought that you studied architecture to be an architect and then I suddenly realised actually, no, you don't need to be an architect. There are so many other things you can do with these design thinking skills, like they can be applied in so many different ways. I think, you know, architecture training and practice equips you to, to think laterally So you're not always just thinking of the most obvious path. And I think that skill set is completely transferable. So for me personally, like stepping from an architecture degree into media, I really loved architecture and design. And I was really keen to sort of see it from a bigger picture perspective. So rather than sort of focusing in on the detail and focusing in on the design of one building, I was quite interested as how collectively architects could be Pushing things further and further and using that creative thinking in new ways. So, I guess I was really drawn to being an editor because I'm really passionate about ensuring the industry is equipped with the information that they need. I see my role as being about sharing our industry's research and creative thinking to inform and amplify, I guess, our collective impact. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's sort of like you you know, you start at that one point, but then as Chris and Ken have both said, it becomes an evolution and you sort of see where your your niche is. And it's really exciting, all the opportunities that having an architectural degree gives you.
0: And it must be interesting also getting to see both of you work, I reckon, within your studios where you're, you know, where you're doing architecture work, Chris, and where you're writing, Caitlin, because what you've learned before is not wasted. So the way that Chris you must design you can never turn that builder's side of your brain off and Caitlin when you're writing you're not just a journalist you're you're also thinking like knowing how stressful that process must have been to go through So is it something that you've uh, had some people comment on in your studio Chris were you like oh stop being such a builder
3: <laughs> oh, mixed responses for sure but um, I think um, the way that we try to practice and particular particular projects where we are just, an architect or the projects where we are the builder and architect there's definitely a way of working with with that duality that it allows for spaces to develop and details to develop on site so we can sort of have these conversations with the client in the moment in the space and really kind of drill down to kind of some important you know whether it's an idea or we see opportunities um, that we can kind of express and be a bit more fluid with how it might happen because there is an opportunity to take advantage of those kind of things. But um, I don't get accused of being too much of a builder much.
2: I'm really interested about how there's this connection of evolution between everyone's journeys. And I think everyone here also would have studied to start that evolution through architecture and design. And I think to all of those students, those high school students or people who have, you know, studied something completely different and then chosen another career. So I kind of want to throw this question towards you, Jacob, with the journey that anyone can go through with architecture, as we can see, it sort of pulls you into different directions. And I think one of the hardest things to decide is what school to go to or where you should study. So Jacob, knowing that you graduated from NIDA's design school, um, how did you make that decision and what advice would you give Young students coming out of high school to select a school um, to study at, or or those who are thinking of of studying set design.
6: Oh, look! I um, set design wasn't on my radar. I'm sort of listening to you all. I have similar stories too. My dad studied architecture, never finished, then became a teacher. So architecture was always in our world, in my world. I wanted to be a painter. I knew that I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to be a filmmaker. And it was just that time i finished school, year 18. And you sort of, you have sort of this general idea about what you want to do. And uh, I just happened to be in Sydney with my partner then and my partner now, and she was already at NIDA. And I didn't know drama school existed. And I walked into the foyer and they had um, their graduating design year exhibition on. And it sort of, I had a moment where I was like, oh, my gosh, this is storytelling, it's visual art, it's architecture. It's all of these things that I was really interested in and I just applied and I got in and I didn't tell anyone that I was going to apply except my parents and six weeks later I was moving to Sydney so it was kind of one of those crazy you know fork in the road moments but I think the students finishing high school it's I think you just have to fill yourself up with experiences and if it feels right it probably is right and um, a friend of mine said to me a couple of years ago she said your way is the right way and it's I, it's really stuck with me. Even back then, I just thought, yeah, I've got to do this. There's something about it. And so I'm quite instinctual. And I sort of believe you have to believe in yourself. There's, in the nate, I think with all of us here and all creatives, you have to have that sort of um, magic of drive, but also the ability to grasp onto something and hold and champion it and go, yeah, this, this feels right for me. And I'm going to explore it. However, you're going to explore it. But I think, I think NIDA kind of chose me rather than the other way around, but what I got out of that was an unbelievable design education. And like we've all said already today, it's about the ideas, it's about how you investigate them, and then emotionally how you connect with a director or a client. And then for me, it's about listening and responding. And um, I think if you're about to, you know, look to your tertiary education, it's all about uh, listening to yourself, and then giving yourself experiences that put you in the right world, how you see yourself possibly in the future.
1: Yeah, I actually have a question for, for all the guys as well. I mean, you know, I mean, it's really great to kind of share so many of these stories and experiences um, of kind of venturing outside of, you know, our disciplines. Um, but, you know, I, I really liked uh, George's question because, you know, I'm thinking about students, um, you know, younger people, not that we're old, right? But you know, younger people listening into this, um, I, I almost feel that for a lot of us, you know, for Chris and Jake and Caitlin, like, you know, you kind of rewind time like five years back. You know, I, I, I've been doing this for like really 15, 15 years now. Like, I feel the world's just so different from, from before. You know, like, I, I just feel for a young for a young student now going into going into the workforce, going into the studio world. It just feels like such a, a much more overcrowded world. It feels like you know so much has been done already. And I think there's a lot more comparison now, you know. There's so many smaller studios, splinter studios out there. Um, and so much more opportunity for mind games to kind of mess around with you as a, a young upstart student or trying to do your own thing and try to do something new. I wanna know from you guys, like, you know, the times where you were most kind of like thought about throwing in the towel, thought about quitting, becoming property agent or whatever it was, right? Like, you know, what, was the, what, what, what did you guys do to kind of help encourage yourself or how did you build yourself, you know, that really good kind of support, you know, to, to kind of keep doing what you guys do now?
2: I'd love to hear Anna's um, answer to that one with starting your own business as, a, uh, as an all-female-led practice as well. And um, I'd love to hear
4: your answer, Anna. I reckon it'd be amazing. I don't know be amazing, but I think I had two young children when I was working for other people. And that was challenging in itself, even though you know they did their best to try and create a flexible environment. I think there was a point where I did consider throwing in the towel, as Ken mentioned, and potentially looking at doing or pursuing some other career that was easier to juggle with kids as well. I think I just felt that it was difficult to sort of find my passion with only limited time in the week. So my decision really to start my own practice came out of being either I needed to make a change or I just needed to pursue Um, architecture in a different way and that being able to juggle kids and a practice from home was sort of the best way I think I felt that that was the only way at the time to although as daunting as it was I think I didn't really have anything to lose at that point so I just jumped into it and um Approached it maybe the same way that you would with design, where you have a problem and you might never have done it before, but you apply strategies or do research and work towards the goal that you're wanting to achieve. So I think I didn't put any particular pressure on myself from a time point of view, or, you know, pressure about I didn't have any high ambitions to be doing certain projects or projects of a certain budget, I think I, I just felt that even if I just pursued doing kitchen renovations, it was the only, it was sort of the way that I could manage or balance a family and meaningfully pursue architecture, I think, in my own way.
0: Yeah, so with with your work, Anna, I mean, you've got a really great small practice that's delivering on all of these different typologies. You've got residential, you've got public, and you've got commercial work. When you were starting this practice, did you think that you would end up just taking all of these different typologies when it seems like when you start a practice, it's often those kitchen renovations that we start off with? Did everything flow the way you're expecting, or was it quite an organic process?
4: No, it was very organic. I think from the beginning, like I said, I didn't have very big ambitions for myself. And I think in the end, when you're starting out, you take on everything and anything that comes your way. And so that's really what I've done over the last four or five years is really take on what's come my way, but then make the most out of that particular project or invest time and thinking into solving those problems for clients and having a shared vision I think from the beginning has meant that they've turned out to be successful for the client as well as for myself so I think there definitely wasn't a plan it's really evolved organically from the beginning but I'm hoping that going forward I could be more strategic maybe about how I keep going (laughs)
0: And has that actually given you the the balance that you were hoping to have with the young family that you have as well?
4: Yes, it has. I think think I've learned a lot about myself and how I design and what my process is and that at times I think that means that I need to maybe make the family thing has to take a backseat when I do need to put the effort and the time into getting something right at a due date, but then at other times I'm able to, you know, put work to one side and then be there for the family at times, you know, that count for them. So it is a constant juggling um, act and balancing act, but I've found that having that within my control has been easier to manage or manage timeframes with clients and say, you know, this this might not be a good time because of X, Y and Z or vice versa. You know, sometimes the family just have to wait and let me get on with the project. So I think it's just knowing who needs what when and being able to juggle those and manage those. at at the same time.
0: Definitely. Really interested then, Anna, where you were talking about, you know, you're sort of getting used to working a certain way and then things organically change. Jacob, you're doing all this amazing work for Bangara and in theatre and dance. And then recently you've been doing some work in TV and film. And... I wanted to ask you about how, how that transition felt when you were, I guess you've been working with Ank Bangara for a while and you've been delivering and getting more confident in your process and knowing what you were doing. And then when you start to head off in this other typology, did it feel like it was perfectly transferable into this new medium or did you feel like you had to sort of start mm. again to prove that you could deliver on this, this new typology?
6: Uh, I think it goes, for me, it's all about your idea like, what are you trying to say? What's the process? And nothing, whatever stream you're working in, that comes back to that. So I had confidence in my vision. And then in a lot of ways, the 2D, because you're on screen, obviously, you know, it's a flat surface. And then in theatre, it's three-dimensional. There's just different tools. Like, it's you're still a storyteller and you're painting images for the camera. And I, I found the mechanics around film or a tv show actually to be the harder part to try and crack into because the ideas and the design and what things will look like it's just that's what i do it's sort of more about the mechanics of the their big beasts like i did clever man a couple of years ago and it was that ended up being like you know 18 months of my life which in architectural terms is, can be quite a short amount of time but you just basically i did 12 hour 13 hour days six days a week for like I don't know, a long time. And I also had a, my first boy was born and he was only like a year old. And then you sort of juggling and that life and work balance. But creatively, um, you're still dealing with the client, which is your director. You've got a script and then you go through the process of describing the visual world. You've got to work with your cinematographer. So there's more people involved, but I guess, you know, I've always been in that sort of world of creatives, working with them and collaborating. So, I didn't find the crossover too bad. I kind of quite like the challenge and like a lot of us have said, it's sort of like you just jump in and you do it. And I kind of, that's sort of just how I've always been. I've just sort of got there and obviously I've got the design background, but I just get it done and work with people to do it.
2: It's so interesting. It's almost like um, an ingredient of being an entrepreneur is just getting into it and just getting it done and doing it. Mm. So you're proud of your own work. But I can imagine, you know, doing that at the same time, you'd heavily rely on a network or mentors and supporters. And I'm kind of throwing this question out to all of you here, but when you transitioned into media or architecture being a builder or film to design or starting your own business, how important was your network and how often did you go to your network for support? Maybe Jacob, you could um, tell us about your network that you have, and if you went yeah. to the support.
6: Yeah, I do. A lot of the stories, well, basically all of the stories I've told are First Nation stories, and I've got really long relationships with directors, actors, choreographers. But some of them, like my relationship with Stephen Page at Bangara is like it's it's such a wonderful collaboration. I don't. Well, we are like brothers, and it goes beyond just friendship. And so I think I'm always, you know, whether I'm directly asking for advice or just having a conversation, I think for me anyway, that's really important because it sort of, it just reaffirms to you that, you know, I'm driven to tell First Nation stories pretty much, and that's who I am and that's reflected in the work I do. And so those sort of incidental conversations along the way just remind you about why you're doing things that you are supported, that we're telling these stories for an important reason. And I think that For me, it kind of goes back to what you were saying before, Ken, in that question. It's sort of like what's the drive? And for me, it's about connecting with culture and cultural responsibility. And, yeah, they're always sort of there pushing me along, even if it's in a silent way and it's just emotional. So I think that kind of, that's sort of what happens for me anyway when I'm looking to to mentors for, um, for guidance.
2: Who were your mentors, Caitlin, in your network when you started off?
5: Um, Look, when I made my step into architecture media, um, which is 15 years ago, I might add, long time, um, I was a baby when I started, really. I was really lucky to be taken under the wing of the editor of Architecture Australia at the time, Justine Clark. Many of you will know from her work with Parlour. She was amazing. She really believed in me and pushed me further and further. It was kind of, you know, I remember when I first stepped in um, the door of Architecture Media, I was sat down and they're like, look, we've never had a student before because at that time I was an architectural student still. They're like, we don't have time to teach you. Let's just see what happens. So it was kind of just jump in the deep end and go for it. So I was really sort of inspired to kind of prove myself, I suppose. But I always had Justine there kind of fighting for me and, you know, barracking for me on the sidelines. So I was really, really fortunate to have that as my kind of first introduction into architectural media. And then obviously Cameron Brune, who was the editorial director for many years here prior to me taking over this role and he was also a great mentor. Um, Cameron's a very entrepreneurial character, for those of you who know him. And we worked very collaboratively together over the years to come up with different ideas, new events, new kind of types of publications. We've done books together. So that was a really exciting um, journey with him. I think that's the thing, like, You know architectural media has actually changed a huge amount in the time that i've been here and that's because we're thinking about how we can do things differently all the time so the actual role that i'm in now is quite entrepreneurial in and of itself when we first started we had no design speaks events sort of side to the business that's been a whole thing that's evolved over that time we only had one awards program We didn't have architectureau.com. We didn't have the Asia Pacific Architecture Festival. (laughs) We didn't have any of those things. So over that time, it's kind of been a collaboration between the people that work here um, and also, I guess, moving beyond just the team here, which is made up, just to let you know, made up of people who have got architectural backgrounds, but also journalism backgrounds. And we're constantly kind of learning off each other the whole time. So that network within the company is really important. But actually what we do is about talking to people outside of our little network in this office. It's, it's actually talking to people in the industry, finding out what's happening, who's doing what, who knows about what, who can, who can write on that topic, who can speak at that event and putting it all together um, and curating that um, in some sort of way that actually makes sense to, to, to an audience. So, you know, I, I often talk about as an editor, you kind of have this cloud sitting above your head and you're kind of, you constantly like plucking bits and pieces from this cloud. Oh, yeah, I remember that person who knew about that thing and told me about that thing at that event and maybe they could speak it at this event over here, you know, it's kind of, it's this sort of constant collection of ideas and people along the way. And, you know, we rely on relationships for what we do. It's not what we think necessarily. It's about trying to relay what the industry is thinking and doing and how we can um, translate that so that everybody hears about it. So, yeah, relationships are hugely, hugely important for us internally but also externally and within the industry. What about you, Chris? Do you still
2: have your relationship with your builder
5: mates?
3: Um, Yes, of course. And not just builders in particular. Like there's so much knowledge to be gained from people who are absolute experts in what they do. So I've got mates who are phenomenal concreters or bricklayers that say they hate bricks, but then lay unbelievably beautiful walls and can create these sort of shapes and forms that isn't the standard. So I really, I'm always leveraging and learning off people who know more than me. And I always try to surround myself with people that are amazing. And if that means, you know, reaching out to someone who I think is really good, I'll try and do that as well. And and then taking that back to architecture, again, starting a small practice was kind of a big step, um, even though coming from a small practice was a really like lovely stepping stone, working with um, James previously, but surrounding myself with kind of small practices of the same size or doing the same type of work or maybe not in the exact field, but that was also been a huge learning opportunity. And we kind of have a small practice forum where we kind of bounce ideas off each other and talk about well everything in the architectural sphere.
5: I think I'm just gonna jump in quickly and say one thing. I think that's you know a really great thing about architecture in Australia. It's a really collaborative kind of supportive network of people. Like I I really feel that from my kind of bird's eye view of what's happening around the country. So I think that's an amazing, amazing thing to have. So definitely draw on that. (laughs) Ken, who did you go to when you transitioned
2: into the design world and business and everything was falling apart and all of that? Who did you go to for guidance?
1: Um, I mean, throughout my entire journey and my career, I feel like I've had just, you know, so many different people who've just come into my life to support me and to give me advice. Um, and, and as Chris said, you know, like, um, I'm very drawn to people who I see as uh, experts in their field. Actually, Stuart, Stuart Vokes is one of those people who, um, you know, again, like he's, I see him as a, you know, a design dad in that sense, <laughs> in so many different ways. Right. But, um, I, again, he came, you know, he was there in my life and um, just being able to just watch him work and being able to like just really glean from him. And, you know, I, I do have this other person, like, I mean, no one would know who he is, right? But um, he was just a very straight talking guy because he, he was actually one of the people who just told me stuff that didn't necessarily just encourage me, but, you know, it's really told me the stuff that I really needed to hear as a business owner. Um, not necessarily the, the most pleasant things, but I felt like just having this person in my life up till now, has been really helpful because sometimes I feel, you know, my, my own heart can lie to me, my own ego can lie to me. And having that one person who can just kind of invade my mind space and tell me like it is, is really important. And I, I, I'm a firm believer that no matter how successful you get, you should always have that person in your life that can kind of call you out on things. Um, it's funny, us being entrepreneurial, us being very open to different disciplines, you know, once you get into that mode of creating, you can get so focused sometimes that you don't see anything else. And, and when, when you need to change course, there's no one there to, to kind of s- to speak into your life. So I, I, one thing that I've kind of worked on with myself is not not just building a great support group, because I think, I, I think it is important. Um, and I think it is important to um, listen to podcasts, to like, you know, find mentors. I think that's important. But um, the thing I've been working on is how do I make myself very supportable? Um, that means like just finding that ability to, how do I make it easy for people to, to speak into my life? How do I keep myself open? How do I ha- how, how do I have open hands, you know, with the way that I do things? Um, you know, it is that one side of me where you have to be very firm and very clear on your objectives, on what you're about. But then there's this other secret side of yourself where, you know, I, I do keep myself very soft and pliable and open because um, I feel like, you know, as an entrepreneur in the industry that we're in, like we need to, continue to keep that dexterity and that flexibility to to be able to change you know, with, with the way that time is moving.
0: I think that was a really good point that you were saying, you know, that like sometimes you have to learn those, those really hard lessons that uh, you know, and that's, why we need to stay malleable and, and pliable when uh, we think we really know what's going on. And I love that quote by uh, Mark Twain, that it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And this is uh, something for for everyone in the in the group. What do you think was a hard lesson that you had to learn only through doing, like actually from starting your practice, where you learned a lesson that you Probably couldn't have gotten if you hadn't started doing your own work, if you wanted to start with with Anna.
4: Sorry, someone's knocking at my door. <laughs> Sorry. Can you just hold on a second? That's
0: a good one. I like, I like, that, one. I like that
2: one. That's, that's the best. A good exit strategy. That's the best
6: out ever. <laughs> uh, I, it, I think for me, because I did like, like you guys, there's so many things like theatre design, film, TV, public art, it's sort of making people believe that you can do it all, basically. It's sort of pitching in a way that they fully believe in you as a person, as a creator, as a collaborator. And um, not that I lost lots of jobs doing that, but as soon as you put yourself... Because everyone wants to put you in a box and say you're an architect or you're a designer or whatever. And as soon as you step out of that box, you're sort of undefinable. And I think um, people get... Well, they don't know how to look at you. There's a cynical unknownness, I think, that uh, I think even now I still, you know, you always have to be everything in a way when you start jumping around into all these different practices. And I think I'm, all, I'm still learning about that. And I, I've gotten a lot better at it. But I kind of, yeah, it's nice winning people over too. And you go, just come with me on this journey and we'll do something amazing. So I think for me, that's probably it. Did you want to have another crack, Anna?
4: Okay, sure. I'm sorry about that. I think similar to what Jacob said, I think jumping into it, realising that you have to be everything, especially if you're, you know, the sole person at the beginning, setting it up and running a business. You've got to be jack of all trades in a way, a bit of a generalist and have a bit of confidence that you can sort of tackle all of those things. I think up until that point before I started my own practice, I had probably deliberately tried to learn a bit of everything along the way. I think some people do focus on being a specialist in one thing, you know, they might be very good documenter and know CAD inside out or they might be a very good detailer and no detailing inside out but I think quite deliberately I tried to learn and understand a little bit of everything which gave me probably a good starting point but although even with that there's still a lot that you've got to grapple with and the amount of time that you've got as well especially with young family to squeeze all of all of that in that you have to manage in running a business is, is quite overwhelming. There is a lot that you have to do, you know, from marketing to accounting to just designing to getting the drawings done. So I'd, I'd agree with um, Jacob on that. Big learning curve.
0: Chris, I can see you itching
3: towards your trigger finger on the mouse. I'll jump back in there as well. Yeah, and building upon what Anna and uh, Jake, Jake said, there is just so much to learn. And I guess the part about getting someone to actually believe in you or believe in the idea is such a, a negotiation when there's a very small body or no body of work to show. So it's almost you have to sell them on the idea or your concept before there is anything and, and then get them to believe it, which I think is such a difficult thing to do, particularly when we're talking about you know a large... Um, sum of money to anybody. But uh, uh, yeah, like just the whole talking with the clients and learning to become better at not just putting them at ease, but learning to discuss or bring them along on the journey of how a project unfolds and just getting better at not just explaining the process, but creating sort of shorthand ways of giving a lot of information at once without necessarily unpacking the whole process each time. And yeah, it's definitely not something I'm great at just yet, but I'd love to get better at it.
0: And just before we get to Ken, I'd love to hear Caitlin's take on this because you're right in the centre of this communication hub for, you know, the way architects are putting their ideas out into the world. It must have been such a huge learning curve to get into architecture media and to, to try to think around, you know, the way architects talk and the way that architects intend for their projects to come out and then how it is presented to the world.
5: Yeah, I think it's so funny, actually, you know, anecdotally when architects take me around their building to show me what they've done and they're sort of trying to communicate that with me, they're always telling me all the bad things that they did. They're like, oh, don't look at that detail, don't look at this, don't look at I'm like, that's not how you should be communicating about your work to somebody who's about to write about it. <laughs> So I think um, that kind of, yeah, so it's actually quite interesting to sort of try and translate how what the architect's intention is into something that I guess is articulate to the world. But um, in terms of like, I'm just, I was sort of thinking more about my own experience of what I've had to learn through, you know, having been studied architecture and then coming into media with very little um you know, education in media or journalism. I did do a brief kind of course in publishing and editing, just a very, um, just a short course. But like I've learnt like so much and I've had to learn like pretty much everything on the job, which is quite daunting really. I obviously use my architectural knowledge every single day, but I didn't know where commas were supposed to go or, you know, (laughs) like it was, you know, there's lots of things that I've had to learn. And also over the course of the time that I've been here at Architecture Media, um, I've also had to change, like, learn new skills. So I've had to host events. I didn't. I've never done that before. That's not part of my, you know, training at architecture school necessarily. I had to do TV interviews. You know, host podcasts. You know, look a whole range of things. Do book publishing. So there's just so many different things that I've had to learn along the way. So. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's a continual evolution as well. It's no, it's no, I've never stopped learning um, on the job. And I am kind of, I guess everyone always suffers a little bit from that kind of um, imposter syndrome, you know, where you're just like, I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, but then, you know, you kind of realize actually, no, you've just got to like, as we're all saying here, have some conviction that you do know what you're doing and people should listen to you about what you're doing. So um, so it's having that confidence to just step up and, and do those things. I have another question as well, if I'm allowed to ask it, because I'm quite, <laughs> okay, good. Sorry, the journalist uh, will never leave me now, um, now that I've stepped into media. I guess I'm just quite keen because I'm on the, the curatorial committee for our Asia Pacific Architecture Festival with Georgia this year. And I guess just to bring this conversation back to the theme of our festival, which is how new is now, I've just got a question about like how everyone here has had to sort of shift gears over the last year. Like what have you had to do differently? How have you used those entrepreneurial skills to kind of adapt to what's happening in the world, you know, given the global pandemic and, I mean, even climate change and all those sorts of, in the climate emergency. I'm just quite curious to hear how, you know, you've had to like shift gears or adapt
3: I mean, obviously there's the uptake of technology and working remotely. And um, I mean, we've got a couple of projects which have just had the border shut on us. So we haven't been able to get to um, Sydney for some projects and even just to Northern New South Wales. So there's been a lot of, you know, upskilling and pure technology about hosting and sharing screens and learning to mute and learning etiquette of how these sort of processes work. But then on the flip side to that, In a way, we're almost going back to a more traditional way of practicing where the kind of making of buildings is tied up with the design of buildings. So we're kind of walking a tightrope between kind of the new and the old and how new is now and then falls back to all knowledge is remembering and it's a difficult thing to explain. But I think we're doing things potentially more traditionally, even, even more traditionally. Ken.
1: <laughs> I just call out the name I love it um how new is now and in, in context to what's been happening in the past year I, I feel I feel like I've worked, I've stepped into a different studio and you know in Singapore we had a circuit breaker pretty early on in 2020 where we went into a full lock, lockdown. We're a lot more cautious than you know a lot of the other countries so immediately things were into lockdown and the bil- the building industry literally, was at a standstill. Like all, you know, all the big government projects, all the sites were were paused, and that's scary for an entrepreneur, right? Because suddenly you, you realize that your pipeline of payment schedules and projects, you know, clients were canceling projects, especially build projects. And then suddenly, I had so much time on my hands because I was literally locked. <laughs> you know, we're locked in the house. Um, I have, you know, I me and my wife, we have three kids, and so suddenly you have all this time to think about your business. And at the same time, you know, being an entrepreneur and having, you know, not a gigantic studio, but a studio large enough that you have relationships with the people in your studio. I, I, I shifted my role to almost being a counselor because, you know, being in lockdown, you know, you had to like sit down and talk to people about the future You know, you had to talk to them about you know, how they were doing. um, encouraging them. So, you know, my role shifted a lot. Um, and with clients, um, I found myself, it felt like I become a full branding studio because the only work that could really go forward was the storytelling work, the graphic work, the branding work. And, um, and it's funny because it, it was a familiar feeling to me. It reminded me back when I first started and I was trying to work out what, what I was doing and trying to work out how to be profitable. And it was, it was kind of nice actually going back because you have this time again to think and there's a good excuse, you know, you're not being lazy, it's a, it's a pandemic. And I, I, I basically had to come back to this, you know, what, what I call, you know, it's kind of like the rule of the first principles that you, why you started doing things in the first place. And so I started to innovate again and just think to myself, okay, why did I start doing this? You know, I, I don't think anybody in here in this chat group started doing the work they do just to throw together brick and concrete and glass and fashion them into things. But I think we, you know, a lot of us, you know, we started this because we wanted to bring value and we wanted to express, and so for me, like, I came back to the first principles of, you know, why I started Parable and, you know, what, what kind of value I wanted to bring to my clients and how could I now do that in this time? Um, and I, I, I ended up in a, and for me personally in, in the studio, you know, why I started, why I do is because I really believe that there were really great people out there, really great patrons, really amazing clients uh, who had beautiful visions and they needed not so much a vendor or a designer. Um, but what they needed was a an, a creative ally to come alongside them. And, and so I pretty much spent most of that year just, you know, contacting clients and just, you know, spending hours on Zoom, just talking about the future and and pouring as much as I had out into them creatively so that they could, you know, get clarity for their business, get clarity for their projects. And, and now that circuit break is over, it's, you know, it's boom. And, you know, all that stuff that we've been talking about is now kind of, starting to come into fruition. But then, it, I mean, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that everyone does that, but it's just taking that time to come back to that, the first principle of why you started. And because the form will always change, you know, studios will change, the building industry will change. But, you know, the principles, you know, I think those are the things that you can carry into the future and and taking the time to think about those things, really, really important.
2: How did it play out, Jacob, in the um, film industry?
1: Uh, Well,
6: I got to the first week. I delivered a design for Bangara. We got to the first week of rehearsal. And by the end of the first week, uh, we were in lockdown. So that kind of just ended. That was the beginning of the end, really, for the year for live performance um, in Australia. And it just, I think, similarly to what Ken was saying, it gives you time to think and refocus your thoughts about. For me, it was about what's the most important stories that I want to tell in whatever medium and it also reminded me of how important it is that as people we need to connect and this separation between us I think will bring us back together and there's always questions particularly in theatre around you know is it still relevant and all of that sort of stuff and of course it is still relevant because we all want that immediate connection that a screen gives but not in the visceral way that I think we will really want after this sort of really does wrap up and everyone's back out in the world. So and I also got to spend a lot of time with my kids, like an unbelievable, like basically eight months of just being at home quite a lot, which was, I think that also played into my thinking around design and what that next little, you know, journey will be. So look, it wasn't easy, but this little minute in our lives of, Rest or worry—it sort of was. I kind of needed it. It, At the same time, it just sort of reset a whole lot of things in in my mind. And you know, as creatives, where we don't our brains don't really stop. And then when you actually stop physically making stuff, you kind of—it's just a little bit more space. So, yeah, that's sort of where I was at and where I'm headed, I guess.
4: I think, like as everybody said, it was a moment, like a moment of reflection on where you've sort of been and what you've been doing but also to look forward to well what does this mean and what changes is this going to have on my practice or have on architecture and what do I need to do to sort of not prepare for it but I think just you know be mindful of how it might change and what what might count so you do I think, become in some ways broader but also narrower in what you might want to achieve and how you might go forward. So one thing that when COVID did hit, there was a round of grants that came out from the government called the COVID Adaption Grant and I applied for one of those and was successful and with that grant I used the money to put into a marketing strategy with which was something that when I had that moment of reflection was the thing that I hadn't done anything of in my practice and I could see that you know with everybody at home and potentially on social media or you know how could I use that marketing strategy to then at the end of COVID be in a position to you know win some jobs or be exposed more to potentially finding more work. I think it's survival sort of kicks in when you're in that state of, you know, well, what does this mean for my practice and what's going to happen at the end of this and how am I going to survive?
0: And I think that's something that, yeah, definitely with coronavirus has made us all, all we'll think about the way that we practice completely differently because we got to have the the benefit of having that sort of shock therapy of, oh, okay, so things aren't always going to proceed as they always have done in the, in the past. Tell us something that was very surprising that you definitely weren't expecting when you were setting up your firm and the work that you were hoping that you would get to do.
4: Uh, yeah, well, in my case, I... I don't think I had very lofty ideas, but I think I've been exceptionally lucky to have the opportunities that have come my way. I've done two projects, one's almost complete, but two projects for government. Where in the past I haven't done a lot of work for government, so I think that's been a wonderful opportunity for me. And there've been projects that I don't necessarily, I haven't necessarily had a lot of experience in in the past, so. I think that surprised me in a sense that I'm not a specialist in those types of projects but nevertheless have put a lot of effort and time into making sure that those opportunities are not wasted. And I think, you know, yeah, very grateful to have have had those because I'm sure not everybody, you know, is lucky enough to have those come their way.
0: Jake, oh, if right. you wanted to tell us about what was surprising about your career after you started working on your own,
6: um, uh, in 2010, I'd basically spent five years out uh, of design school, and I'd sort of started a pretty a good practice. Like it was sort of growing, and it was um, I'd done some shows, and I'd sort of met everyone—not everyone, but you know what I mean. I've become someone where I could have a conversation with people, and something might happen, or they might not. And then I got to Bangara and I I've been there for a decade now and so I just disappeared like I just went to Bangara and all I did because I loved it so much and I was completely engaged culturally creatively and I was part of this amazing team and clan and I just didn't step out of that world for quite a long time like I didn't do I basically didn't really do another design gig for five years I just was there sort of full-time and I loved it and I, it sort of I think out of that the interesting thing I always had aspirations to do other things but it's just unexpected things come along now in a really wonderful way it's like you know how you do all the hard work and no one's really watching you except you and then at the end hopefully at some point conversations open up and more jobs happen and there's this sort of roll-on and so I guess out of that for me I got to Clever Man was a really great thing to be involved with and it sort of set me on a path that made me believe that I could design for film and television and I got to work, you know, with uh, a workshop in New Zealand and, you know, just have an experience that it keeps me growing as a practitioner and I think that's sort of the most important thing for me, it's the jobs that challenge me. And so I've sort of recently been sort of doing some public art projects, which I really love, and they sort of challenging me in this new way. So it's, for me, it's I actually also love the unknown. Like, I don't have some hierarchy of journey that I'm on or pathway, um, but when it feels right, I, I know it's right. And so I think it's just being open and um, surprising myself as much as being surprised, actually.
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest, uh, now looking at where I am, um, the biggest surprise that I have. I mean, you had lots of surprises, but um, I would say like the two busy- biggest surprises I have was when I first started going into, um, into design and having a studio, um, I thought that I would be leaving my filmmaking behind me, uh, maybe taking along some of the process and the mindsets. And, you know, I, I had people say to me like, oh, you know, you never know. One day, you know, the skills to be used, or you know, that time wasn't wasted. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> so I just thought, okay, you know, like I'm really kind of leaving behind that whole part. But it's I'm so surprised now at how much, how much of filmmaking really is in my work, and um, how much filmmaking is in you know the work what we're contracted to do. You know, for you know us being able to kind of create interviews on on Parables platform. Um, I feel like I'm doing documentary filmmaking. I'm having these conversations. I have clients who have seen the work and who understand the flavor of it so much that they've asked us to do storyboards for films for them. Um, you know just I'm just so surprised to see that you know the truth is, yeah, you know, like once you have the gift and the skill and you have the passion, you know if you're open, um, it, it finds its way into the work. you know, it just really does appear it presents itself in this most unexpected ways. Um, and my second biggest surprise was that when I set out to design, I always thought I would be serving the client's vision. But then, you know, over the years, um, I've built such strong relationships that the clients have offered me to be partner in their businesses. Um, and so, for me to be able to own, you know, two of the FNB concepts that I've created, branding, and the, I, I never thought I'd see myself in that privileged position to be an owner. And, again, that's, that's been kind of like me just being very focused on just being, very, uh, being a partner and an ally to clients, you know, and, and that bridge was crossed very unexpectedly where I get to be an owner as well. That, that blows my mind because I never saw myself as anyone who would be able to do anything like that.
5: Well, I guess my answer is going to be a bit different, but when I first started working in media, I kind of was just very interested in writing about architecture and design I didn't really anticipate the public profile that you would need to be an editor. Um, so I really had to grow into that role. Um, it definitely didn't come naturally to start um, and it was a bit nerve-wracking to kind of have everyone sort of know who you are within the industry. It was a bit daunting, very honestly. And everyone looking to you for your opinion and asking you onto panels, asking you to judge awards, that was quite daunting in, in the beginning. So it was, kind of, it was kind of surprising that people wanted to know what I, what I thought, um, but um, which you know, is not necessarily surprising for the role itself. I just didn't know really what I was getting myself into, to be very honest. Um, and I think actually, as you know, time has gone on, the role of the adapter has become more public because of the nature of events and other types of media that we do now. But I mean, it's just, I mean, it's such a privilege though, like to be invited onto international awards juries, which I've done, you know, I pinch myself when I do things like that, you know, that's amazing. Or, or go on, um, you know, international study tours and things like this, which are just, you know, incredible. I mean, I get to visit some of the best architecture. I mean, I was on the National Architecture Awards jury one year, which meant that I got to visit the best projects around the country um, in one year. And that was, you know, with, for other jurors who were just amazing minds within the industry, so you know those kinds of experiences. I mean, I'm just really thankful for them. But um, and you know, I, um, Anna, you're talking about being exceptionally lucky. I, my brother always says to me, Caitlin, don't say you're lucky. You've worked hard for that. Like you actually deserve that. Don't just say it's all luck because you actually have worked really hard. And I sort of forget that sometimes that this is work because I'm so passionate about what I do. I'm just, you know, it's like, and I'm like, oh, wow, people want me to do this thing. And, you know, it's like, but actually I I have worked hard and I think you need to acknowledge that. And Anna, like, you know, the same for you. You've worked hard and people respect what you do and I like I I think back. I wrote a profile on Anna uh, a couple of years ago maybe it's like more than a couple now um and I just was always really impressed by how like you would push clients to do things they would come to you with a project but then actually you were like well hang on a second what about if we think about it like this so there was a the North Shore Pavilion basically they that was supposed to be a temporary pavilion but Anna was like well maybe we could make it like it doesn't necessarily need to be temporary like what if we you know maybe we could keep like we could move this to another site once it's done on this site or or whatever. So she thought about it in that way. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that it's like even though you feel like it might be luck, it's actually there is a lot of hard work to get where you are and you sort of forget that when you're really passionate about what you're doing, which I think is what architects often are. They're like, oh, no, I'm really like, you know, but it's actually you work hard for this. So.
0: That was awesome.
3: And Chris, what was your big surprising moment from from doing your work? I guess I'll just sort of build a little bit upon um, what everyone else has sort of spoken about because I think um, there's a lot said about the effort that you put into your work and the relationships that you build and the stuff that you kind of put out into the world. And then when it does come back, it can feel more um, of, of an accident or of, of surprise. So. I think being able to struggle and work hard and then kind of seeing some of those benefits pop up is, is really delightful. And um, being able to tie potentially into a, a lineage of things. So I'm really interested in kind of creating a kind of an endurance in some of the projects that we do that can be built off for, the, for the next project. And potentially that comes from just the project you did before and then kind of continuing to build off that um, into the next one, so absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on the Hearing Architecture and APAF Podcast Special. Uh, it's been really amazing to hear about all of your perspectives and your experiences starting your own design businesses and hearing about all of the success that you've had uh, to date. We're really looking forward to seeing what happens in the future. Now that uh, there are certain vaccines flying all around the world and there's potential more collaboration and work that can start on site. So Chris, Caitlin, Jake, Ken, Anna and Georgia, thank you so much for, for joining us today and it will be yeah, really lovely to see what you're doing in the future. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Thank you. Thank, thank
2: you. you. <laughs> Thanks, guys.
0: This has been a special episode for the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast collaboration between APAF and Hearing Architecture. If you enjoyed this discussion, we also have another special APAF episode about architecture and education with Carol Gosam, Helen Lockhead, Aaron Peters, Erwin V. Ray and Georgia Burks. To learn more about APAF and all the events, presentations and competitions that are running both in person and online, please visit asia Festival.com. And if you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Caitlin Butler, Chris Ferminger, Jacob Nash, Anna O'Gorman, Ken Yook and Georgia Burks for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio and the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival. The Institute production team was Stacy Rotter, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the APAF production team was Georgia Burks and Jacinta Reedy. Directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance, or other types of advice you should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is
3: accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.